Good evening, guys. Are you guys glad to be here? Awesome. I am excited to be here as well, and I'm really excited to share with you guys what, God, what I believe God has been speaking to me. Uh, about six months ago, we kind of decided on this, this series to talk about Jesus, and uh, from the very get-go, I have been excited to preach this message. I believe the Lord has been speaking to me for about half a year now, and, uh, and I really believe that He is going to be speaking not only to me and to you, but, or, well, t- I'm sorry, to you as well, to every one of us. Um, So, as you guys are aware, we've been in a a series on Jesus, right? We've looked at him as being a better king, a better friend, and a better uh, teacher than all others, right? We've we've looked at how Jesus responds to suffering and temptation and offense. We've seen the roles that Jesus fulfilled. We've seen that he has a heart for missions, right? And we've looked at Jesus, and we've dug deep and looked at him from all different sides with this one goal in mind to see just how beautiful and wonderful Jesus really is. And tonight will not be any different. Uh, tonight, I believe that each of us will see Jesus in a new way um, because we're going to be looking at something, an aspect of Jesus that isn't often talked about, but I believe is highly important, and that is the humiliation of Jesus. Now, before we get into that, I know that sounds heavy, um, I got a question for you guys. Who in this room really likes a good book or movie that has like a really good story to it? Okay, everyone, right? So just shout out to me. What are like, like if you had one book series or one movie series that you could watch or read for the rest of your life, what, what is like the best? Harry Potter. Mistborn. Yeah, Michael. Miss, if you haven't read Mistborn, you should read that. Okay, I heard a lot of blah, 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 blah. So, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, let's go. That is a Mexican movie for you. Um, hey, my wife's Mexican. I think I can say that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, guys, we all have, like, a favorite story, right, a favorite movie. Uh, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as a teacher, right, and that Jesus used stories because stories are what people remember best, Right? Um, and I agree with Jesus. Stories are powerful. In fact, I agree with him so much that this summer I did something kind of dorky, and I took an online class on YouTube uh, about storytelling and story writing, and um, honestly, I was just like, okay, this guy's really good. I, f- I want to see what he has to say, and one of the things that he talked about was uh, a way to write stories um, that, that has been used for you know, generations that's really good, and it's called the three-act model. And I was talking to someone about it the other day, and they said, isn't that just beginning, middle, and end? I was like, it's a little more than that. Uh, so this is the three-act model. Um, it does seem like a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, but the way it works is act one is the introduction. Okay, so this is where the characters are set up. You get introduced to the world and all the different things that kind of go on, right? And then at a certain point, there's a confrontation. The characters come up against some issue that they can't overcome, and things go from bad to worse. And then there's ultimately a low point where if they don't overcome, there won't be a resolution. But they overcome, right? And there's this satisfying resolution to the story. And so we all... We all love these kind of stories, right? We love the story of the person who, who is, you know, kind of introduced real lowly, but then gets brought down to the bottom, even defeated, and then overcomes. I mean, think about Harry Potter. Someone shouted that out, right? The first book, you get the introduction. You're kind of like introduced to this world through Harry's eyes. 
But then at the end of the first movie and book, you introduce this guy named Voldemort, and you're like, oh, goodness. And then it just goes from bad to worse for Harry's life, right? Everyone dies around him. And then in the seventh book, he's about to give himself up, and he's going he's gonna to die to save everyone. But lo and behold, he overcomes he beats Voldemort, and there's this satisfying resolution, right? And everyone, if you don't like Harry Potter, you at least know about it because it's a really good story. And so as I was, like, thinking about um, this type of story, I was wondering, okay, why do, why do these stories, like, why does this appeal to us so much? And this summer, I stumbled across this quote by J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings. Yes. And this is what he said. Within every story are traces of the greatest story ever told. Within every story are traces of the greatest story ever told. The best stories, the ones that we love the most, every one of them somewhere has a trace of the greatest story ever told, and that is the story of Jesus. And so as I was looking at this three-act model, I was like, oh, okay, this, is, this, is actually, this is actually finds its origin in the story of God. Now, if you're not aware, the Bible this beautiful book, it's really just the story of Jesus, right? Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And so if we're going to be talking about the story, the Bible's a really big book, isn't it? If we spent four years, all four years of your time here, and we went through everything we could, we would barely scratch the surface. So I'm sitting up here, and I want to tell you about the story and the life of Jesus, and yet we can't go through this whole book, so what are we going to do? Well, luckily, um, God thought of that, and there are actually some verses in the Bible where God kind of encapsulates and summarizes and condenses the story of his son. A lot of people know John 3.16, right? But tonight, we're going to be looking instead at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, and so it'll be up on screen as well. So this is what it says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, in this passage, we actually end up seeing all three acts of Jesus' life, right? You get his introduction that he's in very nature God. You get his confrontation that he's humbled even to the point of death. And then you get his resolution that he is raised to life and exalted above every name. Now, I'd venture to say that majority of you in this room, this story is not new to you, right? You, you grew up in church or you grew up in America, right? And you've heard this story a thousand times. Uh, you could probably answer all the questions that people ask you, the church answers right. And even if you didn't grow up here, you know, in a church or in America, you probably still heard the story of Jesus before. But the question that I'm asking tonight is not, have you heard the story? But why did this story ever take place in the first place? Why did God humble himself and become a man? 
Why did God leave heaven and submit himself to the most humiliating death ever conceived? Why did Jesus go through all of the pain and suffering that we've heard about? And what does this have to do with you and me? What does the humiliation of God have to do with us? So to answer these questions, we're going to go dig deep into each dramatic act of Jesus' life. So we start with Act 1, which is Jesus' introduction, right? So who was Jesus? Who, where does his story start? What does the Bible say was his beginning? So what do you guys think? By show of hands, how many of you guys think that Jesus' story starts when he was born, like all of our stories? Okay, no one. Um, all right, well, what about when he started his ministry? No? Okay, um, how many of you guys think I'm just asking you a trick question? There you go. There you go. Uh, yeah, so let's look at verse 5 and 6, and this is how it introduces Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Who, being in very nature God, equality with God. You guys, Jesus is introduced into the narrative of history as God. And this this is like a this is a big idea to wrap our minds around, right? Like even if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, the simple idea of God is that God is up here and we're like way down here, right? And so when most people, when we think about Jesus, we think about him as a real man who lived and breathed 2000 years ago, who lived for 33 years and and teached people and, and loved people and ultimately died on a cross, right? We think of him with a physical human body at a set point in time. And yet, the Bible and us also call him the Son of God. But I wonder how often we stop and think about the fact that he is the eternal Son of God. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He was not someone who was created 2,000 years ago, but was in fact the, the same God who created human beings. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is John 1, verses 1 through 3 and 14, and this is what it says about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And then you jump to 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You guys, what this passage is telling us is that Jesus is not some lesser God. Jesus is not lower than the Father. Jesus was not created by God. He was not of a different class or order. Jesus was and is God. And the Bible says that he is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. So as I was like trying to like let this sink into my mind, and, and hopefully this will just drive the point home for you, I was thinking about Job, and God asked Job a bunch of really funny questions um, that he can't answer, and so I'm just going to ask you some of those questions. How many of us in the room were around when the world was created? Jesus was. How many of us have ever held the stars in our hands and, and put them where we thought they best fit? Y'all, I can't even, like, hang a photo in my house and it look good. <laughs> but Jesus did. 
How many of us have ever given orders to the seasons or told the sun where it should rise? Jesus has. How many of us have ever understood the inner workings and details of all of life on earth? I don't even understand Heather, and I live with her half. Like, Jesus knows. Did every creature and every animal and every design of life come from our infinite imaginations? No, my imagination sucks. Do the animals of the earth obey our command? Dogs don't listen to me. But they listen to Jesus. Do the rocks and the trees and the birds and the bees live for our glory? They do for Jesus. Have any of us ever had the full perspective of all sides to be able to give real justice? Jesus has. Are any of us in this room clothed with glory and splendor and honor and majesty? Jesus was. Now, I don't ask these questions to make you feel small, to make you feel lesser, but just to make it clear that before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth, he was enthroned in heaven fully and completely God, the maker and creator, the alpha, the provider and sustainer, the Lord Almighty, Yahweh, God. This is the glorious introduction of Jesus. This is the origin of the man who once walked the very earth you guys have your feet on right now. He is the God of heaven, the King of glory, the high and mighty one. And yet, he became a man. Now, you may wonder why I say this kind of like hesitatingly, kind of sound like it's bad. I mean, that the God of the universe would become a man. But the reality is, it kind of was. Now, hear me rightly. I'm not saying that Jesus becoming a man wasn't beautiful. And I'm not saying that the salvation of man could have been done any other way than the way he did it. But the fact that God himself became a man and then lived the life he did and died the death he died, that, my friends, was to the utter humiliation and shame of God's name. When God took on flesh, he was subjecting himself to the greatest humiliation that has ever happened in history. And it was in the moment when God took on flesh and was born as a baby in Bethlehem that we enter into the second act of Jesus' life. It's at this point that Jesus goes to the downhill plummet, the descent into pain and suffering, the humiliation to the point of death. So we pick back up in verse 6 and continue on in 7 and 8, and this is what it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled or humiliated himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So why was this humiliating? Why was Jesus making himself nothing such a bad thing? Why, why, why humbling himself? Why is that so bad? I mean, isn't that the beauty of the Gospels? Isn't it good news that everyone talks about, that Jesus became a man and died for us? So why am I up here saying that this is the humiliation of God? Well, consider this. So we've, we've established that Jesus was and is God before he ever took the form of man, right? That, that he's the God of creation, the eternal God, the beginner of the beginning. And so with that set in our minds, I'm going to take you just how low Jesus went. So we start with his birth. The first great humiliation of God 
comes with the fact that he even was born. So listen, think about this. When the God of universe took on the flesh and blood, he was going from an infinite magnitude and limiting himself to become finite. And not just the finiteness of a man, let alone, I'm sorry, that he became a baby. Right? And so when God became a man, he could have he just snapped his fingers and, and showed up as a fully grown man. And we know he could have done this because he did this with Adam and Eve. He created them as full-grown adults. So he could have done that with himself. But instead, the God of the entire universe decides to be born as a baby and be utterly and completely dependent on a young, inexperienced, sinful human being. Now, this may not seem at first to be a bad thing, but this is audacious. If God were really to take the form of man, then surely he wouldn't do it this way. Surely he wouldn't be born of a sinful human being and be subject to conception and birth. Surely his entrance onto this earth should not have been so menial and lowly and common because this is God, right? And yet, it was. Or take for the next matter, the place of his birth. You see, Jesus could have been born in the most stately palaces or in halls of splendor or could have graced this earth in glory. But where was he born instead? In the most humiliating place, a dingy, dirty, stinking motel. And not even a room at the motel, mind you, but in the barn with the animals. Here is the king of glory taking the form of an infant, covered in dirt and blood and swaddled by his trembling mother who's little more than a child. And when he's born, he's not attended to by kings and servants as he should have been. He is not in the arms of an experienced mother as he should have been. No, instead, he is greeted by filthy animals in a stinking stable and laid to rest in the areas where the animals eat from. How humiliating that the king of glory should be born in a barn and considered among the animals. And yet, the humiliation and lowliness of his birth was just the beginning. His humiliation would have to go lower still. And so as he grew up, the God of all glory was not raised in some mansion or castle, as his kingly nature deserved, but was instead raised in poverty and had to work and toil with his hands just to provide for his family. And the God of all glory was not from some highly reputable family of the elite class or of high standing, but was instead considered by many of his neighbors and friends to be the bastard son of Joseph. Can you guys imagine this? the God of the universe being considered a bastard because he doesn't have an earthly father? And then the God of all glory grows up and he begins his great work for the salvation of man. And who is there to send him off? You see, when Jesus left heaven, I can bet you that every angel and all the hosts of heaven were cheering and sending him on in glorious procession. But as he begins the greatest work of his life, the salvation of man, there's not a single soul to send him on his way. How sad and humiliating that the God of all glory would be so unknown. And yet he had to go lower still. And so Jesus, he's in his ministry, and he's, he's, he's the source of all knowledge and wisdom. God in the flesh, and he is sharing his teachings with men. And he's working miracles and signs and wonders and healing people and setting people free. And how do the people respond? Do, do they worship him and praise him as the God who now dwells among man? No. Instead, 
The God who dwells with man is met by the religious leaders of his day with protest and contention, being called a blasphemer, a lunatic, and even a henchman of the devil. To his family members, he's written off as a dreamer and a fake, and to his friends, he's met with betrayal, denial, and abandonment. You would think that if anyone deserved a loyal following, it would be Jesus. And you would think that if God could be any closer to human beings than he was in Jesus, that people would have responded accordingly. But to the humiliation and shame of God, Jesus was rejected and despised and esteemed not by the very people that he came to save. And yet he had to go lower still. And what greater humiliation was there in the life of Jesus than his death? The Son of God, the glorious King of heaven, was not subject to some quick and painless death. No, he was subject to the most gruesome and unutterably terrible death of the cross. You see, his arrest and his sentence was illegal in the highest order and completely unjust. Lower still. He was rejected by his own people and sentenced to death in favor of a murderer. Lower still. He was slapped in the face and spat on and had his beard ripped out. Lower still. They tore the skin off his back and they made him crawl through the streets. Lower still. They put a crown of thorns on his head and put royal clothes on him and mocked him as the king of the Jews, little knowing he was actually the king. Lower still, they stripped off his clothes naked and nailed him hands and feet to splintered wood. Lower still, they hung him like meat on a criminal's tree. Lower still, and then the Father in heaven, the one whom he had lived every waking moment for, now deserted him as he was the embodiment of sin. Lower still. And on that cross, the very God who gave every living being breath now struggled himself just to breathe. And in his last moments, Jesus screamed out in agony. His throat was raw. If you think that the cross was something that he sat through silently, you are mistaken. And then in those last moments, he ultimately gave up his spirit. And so happened the greatest humiliation in all of history. The very God who created the heavens and the earth was now dead. Utter humiliation and unbelievable shame. But why? Why? Why would God go through all of this? Why would he suffer so much? Why would he submit himself to such humiliation? Why leave heaven in the first place? I mean, this is God. What, what right do we have to, I'm sorry, what does he owe us? He has no obligation to do this. So why humiliate himself by becoming a man and then ultimately dying on a cross? Why? I believe if I were to go to each of you and ask you, what your answers were, and write them down, this was what many of y'all's answers would be. Jesus did it for me. Jesus did it for you. He did it for us. He did it for salvation, for restoration, for us to be able to have a relationship with God. He did it so we wouldn't have to pay the penalty of our sins. He did it so that we could start over. He did it so that we could have a new life and a new hope and a new purpose and for us to be free. And if these were the answers I got, I would say, yes, praise God. Every one of them is right. 
But can I tell you something? For as good as every one of those things is, for as beautiful and true as they are, not one of them is the ultimate reason why Jesus endured such shame. For as powerful and meaningful and as important as each of these reasons are, they ultimately pale in comparison to his primary motivation for subjecting himself to such humiliation. You see, his one driving passion, his one pure pursuit, the goal that he had his eyes set on was of an infinitely greater love than even you and me. And what was that reason? Do you know what that passion was? Do you know what that pursuit was? What was it that his eyes were fixed on? What was this greater reason? The Bible tells us, the story of Jesus tells us that he endured the humiliation of manhood and the cross, that he was even subject to death, all with the one great purpose of bringing glory to God. Or to say it another way, the greatest purpose of Jesus' life was to make much of God. Jesus lived and died to make much of God. Now this may sound simple, but please, please do not mistake simplicity for triviality. Jesus' life was anything but trivial. And it may seem simplified and short to just say, oh, he lived to make much of God. But my friends, this statement is monumental in actuality. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus knew is if he lived his life to make much of God, then everything else would find its place in the plan of salvation. If Jesus made much of God first, it would ultimately lead to our redemption and salvation if he lived for the highest cause, all other causes, as great as they are, would find their fulfillment in his pursuit of the best. And now it may seem odd to say, oh yeah, Jesus, right? we've established that he is God. And so it kind of seems weird to say that he makes much of God. That's kind of like saying God made much of himself, right? And it, it seems a little egotistic and megalomaniac. And that would be true. If knowing God and being known by him was anything less than the greatest thing for us. But the reality is God is the most valuable thing in the universe. And it would be unloving of God not to give us what is best. And what is best is him. Jesus knew that the best thing he could give us was himself. And because he knew this, he lived his life in such a way to lift God highest. What is best for you, what is best for me, and even what is best for God himself is what Jesus chose to live his life for. And it was because Jesus lived to make much of God that we now come to the final act of his life, the resolution otherwise known as his exaltation above every name. My friends, this is my favorite part. So looking at our passage once more, we start at verse 8 to the culmination of the story. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will notice that nowhere in this passage does it once mention that Jesus died for our salvation, for our restoration, for our redemption. And this does not mean that those things are not accounted for, but it just they all invariably fall under this greater purpose of bringing glory to his Father. Everything that Jesus did, everything that he endured, all of it was to make much of God. And what I love most about Jesus, what really makes him different, what sets his name so far beyond every other name is that in every bit of humiliation and shame that he endured, he ultimately turned it into the glory and praise of God. You see, if after Jesus had died on the cross, if he had remained dead, then this would have been the greatest defeat of God and the greatest humiliation ever recorded. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he reversed the humiliation and shame that had been brought him. When Jesus rose from the grave, he took what was humiliating and turned it into glory. Though it was humiliating that the God of the universe should be confined to a body, it is now to the glory of God that he chose to be like us and identify with our pain and our joy. Though it was humiliating that the God of the universe should be born into this world in the lowliest and dirtiest of places, it is now to his glory that those of us who come from the lowest and saddest places can still draw near to the king of heaven. Though it was humiliating that Jesus grew up in poverty, it is now to the glory of God that even the poorest of us can still know God even if we have nothing to give. Though it was humiliating and shameful that Jesus would be called a bastard, it is now to the glory of God that those of you who come from broken families or misunderstood homes can find a permanent place in the family of God. Though it was humiliating that Jesus received no praise and no honor and no recognition while doing his work, it is now to the glory of God that when we receive no recognition in this life, we know there is one who still sees. Though it is to the the shame and humiliation of God that Jesus was reviled and hated and mocked and rejected and falsely accused. It is now to the glory of God that when we are treated likewise, we know there is one who actually understands what we're going through. Though it was humiliating that Jesus was beaten and lashed and bruised, it is now to the glory of God that all of our, our wounds can be healed through him and his scars, though it is the greatest humiliation that Jesus was forsaken by his Father for a time, it is now to the glory of God that we never have to be forsaken of God. And though it was the utter shame and humiliation of God that Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, died on a cross, it is now to the glory of God that you and I can be called sons and daughters of the Most High King because of Jesus' sacrifice. What other king would leave his throne but Jesus? What other God is there that would become a man to save men? What other hero throughout all the ages and in any other book or movie is like Jesus? Is there any who can turn humiliation and shame into glory and honor? Is there any other like Jesus?
do you begin to see why his name is to be exalted above every name? He lived a life of reproach, a life of shame, a life of humiliation, all with one goal in mind, to make much of God. And what was the result of his life? He made much of God. The band can go ahead and come up. And as the band is coming up, there's still one question I asked at the beginning that I have not answered, and that is this. What does all of this have to do with you and me? What does Jesus living and dying to make much of God have to do with us? Well, it's simple. Do we live our lives to make much of God? Now, this is not a far cry from what our passage is challenging us to do. If you look back at verse 5, the very beginning, this is what it says. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we are told that in our relationships with others and the way we treat people and the way we interact with people, we are to be like Jesus. And so then the question is, how did Jesus live and how are we to live? By living our lives in a way that does not see ourselves as privileged because we're in his good ranks or above others, but yet instead humbling ourselves as Jesus did, even to the point of humiliation if need be in order that our lives would make much of God. It looks like living our lives to exalt Jesus' name highest so that people will come to know him and love him and seek him and enjoy him. It is to live a life that makes much of God. So then I ask you, do you live your life to make much of God? Do you live your life to bring glory to his name? Now, if you're not sure, or right away you know that the answer is no, then I ask you this instead. Will you live your life to make much of God? Will you live your life to bring glory to his name? Jesus did. Will you? So for our response tonight, I believe that God is calling each and every one of us to commit to live to make much of him. Now, this may sound easy on paper. It may sound easy to say, oh, yeah, I commit. But I promise you, it will require sacrifice and it will require surrender. And it will invariably come with humility and even possibly shame. You see, to live a life that makes much of God will look very much like the life of Jesus. You may be misunderstood by your family and ridiculed by your friends and thought lowly of by the people who don't understand. If you commit to live your life to make much of God, He may change your life plans completely. If you commit to live your life to make much of Him, He may lead you to the middle of nowhere. But will you still commit your life to Him? Our world struggles with what to actually live your life for. But friends, is Jesus not the most worthy cause to live for? You see, Jesus saw living for God as the greatest cause any human being could live for. And look at the results. Look at the good that came out of his life. Would it not be true that the same would happen in our lives? Just imagine the glory that could come to Jesus' name and the good that could be done if you lived to make much of him. What if every one of you in this room decided to make much of God with your life, and left this room unafraid to make Jesus' name famous 
in your classrooms and on campus so that the reputation of this school would not be party-loving, but Jesus-loving? What if you resolved to make much of God tonight and took every opportunity to tell your classmates and your TAs and your professors all about Jesus every chance you got so that Jesus' name would be highest on this campus? What if each of you going on a mission trip next semester decided to make much of God with your life and instead of just going for a week or two, ask God, would I get, should I give my life here so that the lost of the world might find their shepherd? What if those of you who are close to graduating decided to make much of God with your life and put off a fancy job for a year to do the Chi Alpha internship or to give six months or a year of your life overseas so that the lost of WVU and the lost of the world might know Jesus? What if you engineers in the room decided to make much of God with your life and said, I'll take a job in the Middle East so that Muslims could know Jesus as I work alongside them? What if you nurses and doctors and teachers in the room decided to make much of God with your life and went to Africa or India or Malaysia or Indonesia and took your physical capabilities, yes, but also the spiritual reality of the one true God so that all nations and tribes and tongues might worship God together? Or what if you never leave the country? What if you never even leave West Virginia? Are you willing to make much of God with your life so that in whatever job you have, whatever neighborhood you live in, the broken might come to know God through your life? What if you make much of God by befriending the people who live right next to you right now, as well as those who are not like you, so that they could know Jesus? What if we used our jobs and our talents and our passions and our pursuits both now and in the future to make much of God wherever we go and in whatever we do so that all the world will see that Jesus is the name above all names. What if we live our lives to make much of God? Y'all, I was a sophomore in college when I decided to live my life for God. I was a 19-year-old clueless kid I didn't have a day of my life figured out, but I was enamored with Jesus. And I made this commitment to make much of God, and God has taken me on the wildest and best adventure I've ever been on. In fact, if I did not make this commitment six years ago, I doubt I would be standing here talking to you. So please do not think that you are too young or that you don't have enough figured out to make this commitment. And please do not think that if you've committed to God to live, to make much of him once before that you don't need to again. I made this commitment to God six years ago, and I've made it many times over, and even tonight, I will be responding alongside you, committing to God once again to live my life to make much of him. Will we live our lives to make much of God? Will you live your life to make much of God? There is none more worthy than Jesus to live our lives for. So if you want to respond to Jesus this evening, whether you've never known him before or whether you've known him for years, if you would like to respond to him, then as a physical response, I want you to invite you to come to this altar space. And if the altar space fills up, there's room over there. There's the aisles. And I want you to respond to Jesus. Would you get up out of your seats and come to the altar and stand in awe of King Jesus or fall to your knees in adoration of the one true God. And then, 
before God, you and him only? Would you commit to live your life to make much of him? So even now as I pray, I invite you to come to this altar. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, I pray that your name is lifted highest. I pray that we would desire and commit to live to make much of you, Jesus. There is no greater cause. There is no more worthy thing to live for than you. And Jesus, as you showed us through your life, you brought glory, you brought healing, you brought restoration, you brought life because you ultimately sought God first. And so God, I pray that as we commit to live our lives to make much of you, that you would bring healing through our lives and restoration through our lives and salvation. Jesus, be lifted high and be glorified. We love you, Lord. And we trust you and pray this in your name. Amen.